Corey and I enjoy getting together, discussing the things of eternity, and we're glad you join us. Today's episode, every once in a while, uh, just has a little extra energy and understanding. And when we're done, I look back and I say, man, that was that was uh, very revealing uh, to me personally. This is one of those episodes, probably easily in my top three. You may not find that to be true for you, but we hope you enjoy it because we discuss God and his earliest beginnings as he makes himself manifest to the Hebrew people. How did they come to understand him and who he was? And even in their language, as they wrote down about him, how does that give us understanding into who he is? We end up in a place by the end of this podcast I never saw coming. It was a little funny. It was a little, uh, it was entertaining and it was very much worth it. And I believe important in my relationship with God and in seeing him. I hope you stay with us and enjoy this episode as we talk about God being one in purpose. Welcome to Restore Gospel Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Corey Stark. We are two friends having casual conversation on the things of eternity. We welcome you into that conversation. Brother, this morning when I woke up, I rejoiced. I had a text message waiting for me with a picture of two brothers from California that were able to meet up and spend some time together and uh, came together, I think, through listening to the podcast and finding (laughs) out about each other. So just uh, I just thought that was real neat. That brings joy to my heart, and I'm happy to see what the Lord can do with with our minimal efforts sometimes and blessing other people. So That's awesome. Yeah. Today we're going to talk about uh, God. <laughs> Imagine <laughs> that. Um, Corey, you came across the book, and I actually ordered the book after some deliberation on whether to get it on the Kindle or not, and uh, I think the deciding factor was being able to open up a new book and smell the pages. So I actually went with the uh, the hard, the hard tangible book. So um, tell us about this book and some of the Hebrew um, things that you learned from this or where you're at. Sure. Uh, the book is called His Name is One. The author is a gentleman named Jeff Benner, B-E-N-N-E-R. I would recommend this to anybody who's listening. Uh, if you have any interest in uh, the things of, uh, you're going to find this fascinating on several levels. This man, I don't know, has any belief or understanding of the Book of Mormon, for instance, but I think you're going to find so much of what he says really, really just substantiates things that we've already believed in the Book of Mormon. I'll add just, we'll put a link in the show notes, but I, I will say that I, my uh, my learning ability may be a bit below Corey's, but this guy actually talks on a level I can understand. So if I can get it, uh, any of you guys can get it. So <laughs> No, it, you know, I, I'm, I'm actually glad you said that because in the last couple of months, I mean, I've literally ordered probably 30 books of different types. Most of them have to do with Hebrew, but I'm feeling like this book is probably the most valuable one. And it, as you said, it's the most... Um, cleanly written. It's not written on a scholarly level like some are who only the upper echelon are going to understand it. This is something that uh, you can pick up and you're going to, you're going to relate to every page. I've literally got highlighting on every page of this book and it's, it's not a long book. Uh, It's not a long read either. Um, You can go to the 
gentleman's website, Jeff Benner's website. It's called ancient-hebrew.org. And you're going to find over a thousand links and articles and things this uh, author has written. Um, his purpose, just to say, is really devoted towards trying to explain the Hebrew nature of the scriptures, ancient scriptures, in a way that makes sense to modern Westerners. And um, we'll get into this a little bit more. Um, I, I suppose uh, you, you'll find this out eventually, but today's podcast might seem a little more like a Sunday school class uh, in that uh, I'd like to go through some of the elements the author makes and, and relate them back to some questions that, as Mike said, come back to this single question of the universe, who and what is God? And I... And I like Sunday school classes because I can sit back and enjoy and just make sure the sound's working. So I am excited <laughs> as well for today. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, here we are, even though the broadcast will come out afterwards. Uh, class, uh, Sunday school and church was canceled because of coronavirus issues for me today. So here we're having Sunday school class on the podcast. All right. All right. Um, so, Mike, I'm going to hold up my imaginary number two pencil like you had in school. And how, as a Westerner, would you describe the pencil that I'm holding up in the air? Yeah, I would say um, it's yellow, <laughs> and it's got a number two on it, and it's got and it's a maybe, eraser. Yeah, and, and it's, it's maybe, how long is it? Yeah, it's maybe eight inches long. Right, um, right, right. Yep. So that's the pencil I'm holding up. Now, here's the problem. In the Western culture... We are programmed to describe things as we see them, as the objects and entities that they are. Eastern minds, specifically the Hebrew culture, that's what I mean by Eastern. I'm not thinking Chinese so much. Mm -hmm. But the Eastern mind sees it differently. Their cultural conditioning would not be to describe it as it's yellow and it's eight inches long. The first, if I held the pencil up, same pencil in front of a group of Hebrew people, ancient Hebrew specifically, their hands would be raising in there and say, Oh, 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 it writes words and it erases words. So their, um, their viewpoint would be to describe its function versus uh, it as an object. That's very, very important in, in moving forward in any of this. And this is something that I'm just learning, I, I did not understand this. But uh, as we go through, we're, we're going to see some of these things. And I'm sharing things that I've learned in this book. So don't take this as something that I brought to the table with some kind of a prior understanding. I'm, I'm literally just learning about this this week. Uh, coincidentally, uh, a friend who's also a listener on the podcast uh, emailed recently and was asking questions about, you know, what do these scriptures mean that where it says, God is three and the three are one. And, um, you know, we even throw words into here, Mike, you know, uh, before we started the podcast, you mentioned a word about how, what's that word you mentioned about describing God and the nature of God? Trinity. <laughs> he was, I think they heard you. <laughs> Trinity. <laughs> I'm right here. Yeah. Corey whispers with a mic, uh, like an inch from his mouth. Yeah, the Trinity, I'm going to say, Corey. Yeah, oh, good answer, good answer. I've only got one student in class today. so. Yeah. <laughs> but my um, my reason for sharing this is, is, first of all, you know, we have a lot of questions about this. I want to say point blank, do a scripture search if you're online right now. Any, anyone, do search any Bible you want, not even just at restoredgospel.com. The word Trinity does not exist in 
the Bible as that word, Trinity. Okay, so be aware that's a description that we in our culture have given to this understanding, or at least the understanding we think we have of God. But there's more meaning in the scripture. And when we understand the Hebrew thought process, I think some of these answers become a little bit more apparent. So going on this idea that the Hebrews thought about action versus object, um, you know, any language deals with concrete words, you know, things, and it deals with the abstract emotions, for instance, a word the the author points out is uh, the, well, the word anger, the word anger in Hebrew, now this is more of an abstract thought, but the word anger was represented by what we would translate as the word nose, like the nose on your face. Now, the author points out the fact that it's in any language, it's the challenge of the translator to come up with an equivalent, not just word, but understanding to the culture to which the words are being translated. For instance, in if I use the word, oh, he was very angry. Well, Mike, you're going to understand. People listening are going to understand because we're Westerners. We understand English and we have this idea of angry without me going into it. Well, the word anger in the ancient Hebrew <clears throat> was depicted with literally an object of a nose. Yeah, I love this. When I was reading this, I was like, what in the world? How in the world? And then when he explained it, it was like, wow, that's really cool. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so, um, and I have to say this, I'm going to say more about it here as we go. But before Hebrew, for instance, was the block character language that we kind of see, you might recognize these funny looking symbols and they read right to left rather than right to left or left to right. And there's symbols that look just kind of like Oh, some look like little W's and backward R's, but those block characters were not the original language of the Hebrew. The Hebrew was actually derived from an Egyptian script of what are more pictographs or pictures or um, even like hieroglyphics. Hebrew wasn't the original language, at least as a written language as we recognize it. They may have spoken in words of Hebrew, But the actual written words of Hebrew started out in an Egyptian script. Now, right there, for Book of Mormon students, you're going to be thinking, hey, where did I hear about Egyptian? And and isn't there some mention of it in the Book of Mormon, right? Um, First Nephi, chapter 1, verse 1, which is going to be the same in LDS or RLDS versions, Nephi explains he's making plates and he says something very, very interesting about this. And I'm going to come back to the anger, but I, but I got to throw this out. He says, I'm making some plates and I'm doing it in the language of the Egyptians and the learning of the Jews. Now it's very, very interesting. The language of the Egyptians. When Joseph Smith took these, uh, well, Martin Harris took a, a few of the letters and characters translated from the plates on a piece of paper to a professor to have him verify that, hey, these are these actually Egyptian characters? And the professor verbally says, yes, they are. Well, what he took was some Egyptian script. Now, scholars would say, well, that can't be right because they wrote in Hebrew. No, this author, uh, Jeff Benner, in his book, who's a Hebrew scholar himself, points out the fact that it was the language of the Egyptians 
and the writing of the Egyptians was exactly what the people of the Israel culture used exactly up until the time of Lehi's departure. When Lehi departed a few years after that, Jerusalem was wiped out by the Babylonians. They were taken into captivity. It's at that point in time when they started changing their language into block characters that we recognize today. But up until that time, which would have meant even including Lehi's day, they were still using a pictograph sort of way of writing. Now, why is this important? Well, that's exactly what the Book of Mormon was. That's exactly what the characters were. And that is just this little nuance of history that is exactly proving the, the proof of the Book of Mormon. Who, what farm boy in the 1800s in rural America would have known that? right? That they were actually writing in an Egyptian type of script of pictures to represent words and ideas from their culture. And that was true up until the day of, of Lehi's departure from Jerusalem. Just curious, Corey, and if this doesn't fit, uh, just forget I said it, that uh, stone that you were you sent me a pictures of compared to some of the letters where you had numbered them and they were identical, does that fit in here or no? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. So in Tennessee, in the uh, 17 or 1800s, a stone was found with some funny squiggles on it, and it was given to the Smithsonian, and they said, ah, this isn't anything, but they actually put it on display. Later, some people came in, and they thought it was just something of Indian origin. Um, some people who knew came in and said, that's ancient Hebrew. And, and it was, when you look at the Egyptian script of the day, you can see on the stone many of these characters match up to what has been found in Egypt in their writing period of the same time period of Lehi's time and, and prior to that. Well, they said, this is Hebrew. And by the way, you're hanging this upside down and this <laughs> translates this and it says for Judah, for Judah, for, in other words, it's talking about the Jews. They're not exactly sure what this stone was, if it was like a gravestone or a mark or whatever, but here in America, they find something with ancient Egyptian script on it, even talking about Judah. And of course the Smithsonian hides it away, right? But you can go online and search these words, bat, B-A-T, like the baseball bat or flies around, bat, creek, stone, those three words, and you're going to find the picture of this thing. And then just search ancient Egyptian script, and you're going to find pictures of the script, and you're going to see they match up. I made something. I'm going to put it on Restored Gospel here yeah, shortly. We'll I'll have put a link, a link. To that. I'll, I'll link in the show notes where people can, if they're interested, can click on it and take them to a picture of that. Yeah. So, so why is all this important? We're talking about pictures and script that was part of Nephi's day, and it was part of the plates. Well, you you sent me a picture of, was it the Anthon manuscript or was yeah. it another one? And you actually, you wrote in your own numbers and numbered the characters on this stone compared to the characters of the manuscript that, yeah. we, that we had copied from the Book of Mormon. Yeah, and, and it's 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 fascinating. Identical, yeah, many it's, of them. It's fascinating because, you know, some someone who didn't know would have just said, oh, well, here's a bunch of Hebrew characters. But see, that wasn't what Nephi's people in his day were still writing in. This author corroborates, no, they were writing an Egyptian kind of pictorial script that in about the time 500-ish years before Christ, that's when it evolved into a block character. And and the so here's here's one of the things, going back to this word anger. Well, the pictograph for the word anger in the ancient Hebrew was a nose. Why? Because, and that was you know, if, if you would translate the word nose, no one would understand you're talking about anger. But to the reader in the ancient Hebrew, they realize that when people get angry, 
Their nostrils flare. Again, it's the action of the nose. What does the nose do? Well, the nose portrays someone's anger. You know, you don't flare your nose when you're happy normally, right? Yeah, that's 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 a cool way to <laughs> have it tied in. You know, another one of those, crap. when I was listening to the Bible Project, they were talking about Holy Spirit. Uh, and I'll be very careful here not to misquote. Uh, it was something about like the sound you make in your throat or breath. It's the breath. Yeah. It's the breath. Yes. Yes. But, it, but it came from like this this throat area or neck, and so that's another one that you really have to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the the holy where it talks about God breathed the life into him. That whole action of of life and breath mm-hmm. were connected in the action of breathing. Right. Yeah. If you have life, you're breathing. So and, and and so these words have to be translated back into things that we understand conceptually. But the actual words don't always mean the things we think they mean but unfortunately sometimes the words would get translated like that because the hebrew scholars translating were very influenced by their own culture and and what i mean by that is hey if you're a christian by birth but you learn hebrew well you're going to want to translate scriptures that reflect your belief in a way because you're forced to without the equivalent words sometimes and the same with the Jews. The Jews had understandings. They would translate according to their understanding, and maybe they would intentionally translate things that didn't point to Christ. You see a lot of debate, for instance, over Isaiah 53, even today. If it's a, if it's an English, or I'm sorry, a, a Christian author, well, they're saying Isaiah 53 talks all about Christ, pointing towards Christ. If if it's a Jewish author, they're saying Isaiah 53 doesn't talk about Christ. It talks about the nation of Israel. You know, that's their view. But what's important is that we understand there was an original intent, but there wasn't always an equivalent word to put those in. So, so the context does does matter. Um, so, this is going to move back towards God, and and one of these things I just find fascinating again is these symbols for God were meant not to portray the object of who He is, but the purpose for what He is. Um, one of these ancient pictographs for God was depicted as an ox. Now, if you, it wasn't like the whole picture of an ox. It was just sort of the head and the horns laying on its side. Almost like if you look at like a kind of Texas culture in America, you'll see like the skull of a, of a you know, some cow or something, you know, and that's popular in, in that, in that culture of our day. Well, this little outline of the ox head was part of the word for God. Now, now why? Um, it was coupled with other symbols. But first of all, you had to understand in the Hebrew that the ox in the Hebrew culture was considered the strongest and the most valuable of any animal they could have. It's the one that did the work. It's the one that made money for the family, right? Because mm. it could it could pull, it could it could grind, it could do whatever, and it earned its keep. But it had strength like no other strength, right? So the part of um, the interesting thing is, so with God and the word for God um, was an ox head coupled with the picture of a staff. Now a staff like you walk with. Well, what would how would that represent God? To the Hebrews, again, the staff was something a king had, and it represented his authority, his his ability to carry out and execute his word. So this ox was strength, and the staff was authority. And so the interpretation was that God leads with strong authority. And, And when they saw these pictures together, 
again, they were thinking of the action of what does God do? Not that God is this animal that has a stick with it, right? It was the idea of strength and authority. Um, the idea for father, uh, like a, a human father, was an ox, and then there was a little picture of a tent next to it, which represented their dwelling place, a home. And and those two ideas coupled together as a picture represented that the father was the strength of the home, right? And so one more word, a mother had a picture of an ox, but next to her was it looks just like wavy water, like little waves on top of of the of a lake or the ocean. What that meant to them goes back only into the Hebrew culture. Now, if it had been interpreted, you know, ox water, no one would understand even what that was. Hmm. You're talking about mother, right? Because right. but that's how we'd want to interpret it. Ox water. What what it represented to them was the process of when an ox or calf or whatever was killed, the skin, every part was used. The skin was boiled in water. And as it boiled in water, it gave off a thick substance that we would just call glue, but some kind of a binding agent. And that binding agent was very, very, very useful for lots of things in life back in the day. But they considered this strong water, this binding glue that came out of the water was the best representation for the mother because her purpose was to bind the home together. The, house, the, the father was the strength of the home. The mother bound the family together. And that, that all comes from this idea that with the water and the ox skin came this glue and the mother was represented by that. But again, that was her purpose. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, I'll, I'll pass on to Weston when he refers to Christian to just say, Oxwater. <laughs> Ox, hey, Oxwater. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. She'll appreciate that. Yeah, I'm sure she will. You know, uh, she probably want to get a little nex- necklace with an ox and stuff on it. But my, but so now this isn't an aside. This is actually helps historically uh, some understanding. Moses has the Israelites in the wilderness. They've been in Egypt for years. Now remember, they're steeped in this culture, oxes and things like that represented God to them, right? But when Moses comes back from the mountain and finds the Israelites doing sinful things, what was the thing they made? What was this idol they made? <laughs> an ox, golden ox. Yeah, yeah, they make this golden ox. Why? Why did they make an ox of all things and say, this is our God? Because their whole culture was steeped in the representation that somehow the strength of an ox represented God, but they made it in their own image. They made it as a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Which was totally what God said, don't. And he said, don't make graven images of me at all. But the whole thing is, again, they were wanting to turn God into an object and make it to their understanding. So they make a symbol, you know, this golden calf thing was somehow going to be their God. And it was all based on their culture, but now they, were, they showed how they're already going are already going astray in their understanding. Well, that's, uh, yeah, I continue on. That's, uh, I'm just enjoying listening. Yeah. To that. So, so it will get to why this is important. Um, but we're just like, I think you're laying a foundation right now and just presenting some facts. Um, cause whenever we study this, it, it's exciting for a reason. And I think, you know, we'll get into why, what does this mean to me now? You yes. Know? Yeah. So, and so, but, right. The history of it, I think is important. And then we're going to rush into that. Yeah. No, no. So I'm enjoying. So this continues and I know we've mentioned mercy and justice many times. It's fun though, Corey, to go into the scriptures and fi- and see like, you know, when we have a word like faith and you think, where was faith first used? 
And I I studied kind of down this same path from another source one time, and it was um, it goes back into like uh, Moses leading and things through the wilderness, and 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 um, pictured that first thing. That was where that concept came from. Uh, the very first time the word, the Hebrew word for faith, was used in the scriptures, and it, that was a study I did a long time ago. But I think it's it's valuable that we have the resources to go back and think, what were the first people thinking when they used these words and how did it affect them and why was it important in their life? And then try to, you know, figure out, well, how does that apply to me today? Because we really, we really, uh, after hearing a word through time, like faith so many times, you have all kinds of things like faith healers and, you know, energy and, um, you know, conjuring up belief in your mind or whatever, but really, I think it's valuable to go back. Where did the word come from? What did it mean at the time? What was, you know, what were those people using it for? Exactly. So related to this study, I learned something again, just in the last few days, what you mentioned, this word faith, um, scholars today, or maybe more evangelicals will claim, you know, the book of Mormon can't be true because it talked about ideas like faith and repentance and salvation before the New Testament times, because those words only appear in the New Testament, at least as far as we read them. This author and other authors I've Mm -hmm. just been reading point this out. They said, no, the concept of faith and salvation and repentance were as strong and understood by the culture in the old days. The problem is it was all in the translation. When the translators were translating these words, like you point out, mm-hmm. faith was represented by Moses yeah, in the wilderness. Now that I think about it, it was actually, because um, what I read at the time, I'm like, what? It was like nursing mothers. Okay. So, so, so actually this getting is coming strength up. and things from your mother's, you know, the child from the mother's breast, the, the life blood, the, it, that was, it was tied into that as well. And I, I won't go too far because I'll misquote it, but it was interesting. Well, so that's actually coming up. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned okay. that because um, so what it is, this author points out, he says, is, no, it's not that the concepts weren't there. It's that the Hebrew translators didn't always understand an equivalent word <clears throat> to put them in. And so... We, we sometimes get a little bit led astray, but they point out, no, faith, salvation, repentance, all these ideas were there. It's just lost in the translation now. So still building a little bit more foundation. And what you just touched on is, I think, really profound because there's an element to this idea of the nurturing aspect of God coming up. But I wanted to touch on another area. We've mentioned mercy and justice several times on the podcast. Not going to go back through that, but just wanted to point out how it's explained in the Book of Mormon, unlike anywhere else, how God is this God of mercy and justice. Well, this is another aspect of the Hebrews different than ours. They were brought up in their culture to view God as a whole, not as just one. Our our upbringing is such that, you know, hey, what do you learn in nursery school, Sunday school? God is love, right? And so, you know, you you get this aspect of God is only good. Well, the Bible says, hey, I'm God. I create good. I create evil, all these things. The Hebrews were taught to see God as, as one complete, not just a piece. And part of our focus has been, no, it's just more the aspect of God being being one half of that. And not always taught to view the, the the both because that seems to bring conflict to our understanding. So two words we've talked about 
that were the words for God, Elohim and Adonai. Elohim was a plural word for God. Here's a mistake that people in our culture have made, even people like Brigham Young, I believe. Now, Elohim, the pluralism of that has a couple different meanings historically. One fairly reputable author I, I read, a Hebrew scholar, states that, well, sometimes the word for God was pluralized because God was so big and mighty and it was beyond our understanding. So the only way that could be expressed was to pluralize the word. And in the Masoretic text, which was Hebrew texts that were much later, you know, than, uh, than the authors wrote, but the, they were retranscribed by, by people who gave their lives to retranscribing this. Sometimes they would pluralize a singular word just to represent its greatness. And sometimes they did that with the word God. That's one explanation. But this man, Jeff Benner in his book, points out something I think is beautiful. He said, you have to understand, we are conditioned to think quantitatively. So if it means, if it says Elohim being gods, that somehow we're thinking it's talking about more than one entity of God, like multiple God people, right? Mm -hmm. That's how we're conditioned. He said, the Hebrews don't stumble over that at all. He said, no, when they read gods, they're not thinking uh, plural in terms of quantitative. They're thinking plural in terms of qualitative. In other words, the qualities of God are many. That's the whole. He's, he's mercy and he's justice. He's both of those things. That's why they pluralize it. And when they read this, and this is why this title of the book is called His Name is One, and, and it helps us in our understanding when it says, hey, the, you know, the Shema of Israel, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, that was, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. So they weren't talking about one in terms of singular entity, like we want to try to understand it. They were thinking God is one in his purpose. And so when we see these words, they don't mean the same thing because sometimes the words aren't even available to translate it properly, but it was more the cultural conditioning of their understanding. One in purpose. One in purpose. That's what it meant. Multiple purposes all united as one. That's what Elohim meant to them. Plurality of purpose to a singular end. Mm. So isn't that something? I mean, that to me just helps all the way around because then you start going back and saying, well, what does the Book of Mormon say? I mean, it's this great translation and it explains God that way, right? It explains it that way. Um, when people went astray, even in the restoration, people would use this word Elohim, which is used early on in the book of Genesis saying, well, see that meant there were gods. There's this council of gods and there's these planets and there's these, you know, all these other yeah. tan tangent ideas came from this yeah and that's not even um you know it's some, not unique to that some of the guys that i like to listen to on the podcast they went through this and and that's the conclusion even that that they're coming to and they have nothing to do with latter-day Satanism or anything but they they um acknowledged you know a council of gods now they said not that there was more than one supreme but that the word was referring to just these heavenly beings you know whether they were angels or Whatever, but um, but that to me sounds like just a little bit maybe a lack of knowledge of that Hebrew uh, meaning exactly to, to take them down that path exactly. And so 
again, we, we stumble because we don't always understand the mind of the people who wrote this. So again, their function was to see these words as what is its purpose versus what is its object, you know, physical versus, you know, uh, purpose. I love that stumble because that's just part of the purpose of the book and where they stumble because, you know, the plain and precious parts were removed and, and I know you'll get into this, but, you know, and we did an episode on the simpleness of the Book of Mormon in presenting uh, God in its writings and in the scripture to leave no mistake mm. you know, on how to look at him, mm-hmm. which is wonderful. And I, yeah. Well, so this is something I learned too, that if you open up a King James Bible, sometimes it'll have, well, for instance, the statement we've all heard, the Lord, our Lord is, is one God. Um, but it uses the word Lord twice. And if you look in a King James Bible, sometimes that first instance of the word Lord will be in all capitals. The reason for that was they were actually using two different words for Lord. They were using one, the God of justice and also the God of mercy. And sometimes if it was all capitalized, it was that main, that name, um, we don't even know how we're supposed to say it. You know, if it was the true name of Jehovah or Yahweh or whatever, mm-hmm. where there's this debate on, hey, the Hebrews weren't even sure what it was. When it's all capitals in the ancient Hebrew pictograph, it was this depiction of this God of all authority, you know, the ox or whatever that ended up in the Hebrew letters. They didn't know what the actual name was. They just knew what it meant. But that's why they capitalized it. It was because it was the great and almighty God who was this supreme God of justice. You know, Gordon, the, the thing about names, I just want to hang out on that for a second. We don't get, you know, I, I, I do care in the home of uh, mostly uh, mostly babies, you know, newborns that come home with problems. And so I'm always, I always like to ask parents, why did you pick the name? You know, mm. and some people are just, well, it was cool or, you know, his uncles, such and such. But, and then every once in a while you get someone, well, it means such and such. And they actually look up the meaning for a name. It's yeah. still important, but it, in our society, I think we've lost by far, according to the early culture, naming, you know, we look up these baby books and we find something that sounds cool or looks neat or, well, that's unique, you know, but there was a great significance early on uh, as far as names go. And they meant so much more. Like, um, like I read in that, the names of the sons of Adam going on down. And it tells the story through their generation, the meaning of the names of Christ coming. Exactly. And you know what? I heard a script. I heard a sermon preached by my pastor in Belton 20 years ago, uh, more where he went through the names of, you know, threw down Adam and and told that. And I had never heard it before. Mm. And here it is. I'm reading this 20 years later again. So names meant something back then that um, in our culture, we don't quite, unless we really focus on that, it just goes over our head. We don't really think about that. No, we don't at all. In fact, I just flipped out. I have the book in front of me. Um, To your point, Mike, I'll just add this. Uh, Adam meant man. Seth meant to a point or set in place. Enoch actually meant uh, mortal, which can also mean a man is mortal. Uh, There was a a Kenan meant dwelling place. Mahalil, the light of God. Jared meant comes down. Enoch, uh, oh, when I said Enoch earlier, it was Enosh, rather. Uh, Enoch meant to dedicate. Methuselah meant his death brings. Lamech, despair. And Noah meant comfort. Now, the, the reason I read all those out is because if you put all those words in a sentence, there's actually a little prophetic idea. Because the words in order basically say this, man appointed a mortal dwelling, the light of God will come down, 
dedicated, his death brings the, the comfort. Dis- isn't, isn't that something when you put all those words together? Yeah, I like it was despair, comfort. Despairing. Oh, yeah. And, I, and you could take that different ways. It could be we were in despair the until dis- he oh, brought the light, or it could be, I don't know, what did you feel when he died? But there was despair, but then there was great light as he was resurrected. You yeah. Know, either he, way, I don't know, thanks, or more. Thanks for correcting that. Yep. And I, 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 need to, I need to restate that. His death brings the despairing comfort. Not that the comfort was despairing, but brings comfort to those who are despairing. Yes. Yeah. All those words together are, all, are prophetic. I mean, all those names. Isn't that amazing how God lined that up? Yeah. And how do you, uh, well... Again, it's just piling on more and more information that hopefully strengthens our faith and solidifies the foundation we're on. And if we're standing on a rock and maybe it's just a little pebble, I hope that rock is growing bigger and bigger in our lives that we say there is no doubt that this is one God, that our God is mighty to save and and here's my foundation. And all of these things add to that foundation. Not not that they save us, but I mean, come on, that's... (laughs) That's just cool stuff there, especially when you have people that try to, to to tell you it's just all made up and it's just all. Exactly, exactly. There's so much. It's so deep. And, and it's and what human mind can weave together all of these stories? I mean, you want to debate about we were created from dust and, and you know, chance and all that. What what entity weaves together this many intelligent things on so many levels? Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. You know, there's there's so much. This is so so rich. And as you point out, these people could not have just made this up. Uh, I'm continually in awe. I, I have such. I never knew how much respect we should have had for the people who wrote the Book of Mormon, the original authors, until I start understanding these aspects of Hebrew and how they purposefully structured their sentences to convey meaning. And these meanings are brought through in all the pages of the Book of Mormon profoundly in, in ways that tie back to the what the Hebrew scholars say they should. And I'm just thinking, these people are so far beyond us in their understanding and, and, and their ability to convey this. It's Most of it's probably all going, gone over our heads. But so to where we're at right now, Here's here's the biggest point I guess just to kind of summarize. So yeah, far. I interrupted you on no, the, no, no. the name thing, but you were on a roll. I but, don't even but remember where you're at. <laughs> no, I, I just want to point out that where we translate the word God as as one as being a thing, the better understanding from the Hebrew was unity. Okay, mm-hmm. that the God is unity. All right. Um, so this Adonai and Elohim. One of the other things the author points out, and, and I won't spend a lot of time going through the whole explanation, <clears throat> but he talks about this idea of Adonai and his name being one of this extreme of mercy on one hand or justice on the other, punishment or, or you know, the, the forgiveness. That word Adonai actually came from the understanding that both meant God was a judge. God was a judge to inflict the punishment. That was the, the justice. But God, as Adonai, was a judge, the kind of judge who looked for innocence, who looked for a way to pardon. And, and that's very interesting because that's what, when they saw the word Adonai in their script, it represented them, a, a judge who was on the lookout for your good, who, who wanted to make sure good things happened to you. And so... It's it's so enlightening to, to see these things, at least it is to me. But again, it's our culture, you know, the 
the idea that God is all these things isn't always represented in the Western mind versus versus literal. You know, uh, you mentioned this idea of the um, the 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 breast or the the breastfeeding. So there's this word God is Almighty. The author points this out, and it's really really fascinating, especially since my wife is a lactation consultant. We mm-hmm. we like to talk about these things. So. There are words that if they were translated again, like the nose and anger, wouldn't make no sense. So this word almighty. Did we ever get to the end of the nose? Did you talk about the flaring of the nostrils? Yeah, yeah the flaring okay. of the nostrils. I was taking notes anger. I, I think it was a little bit behind you. Okay, good. Okay, so this word almighty is an example of a word where the original Hebrew understanding would not make any sense if it was translated literally. So when we see the word like the Lord God almighty, mm-hmm. um, that's a word that Hebrew translators had to struggle to find something that could be meaningful because the original intent was so much more abstract. The Almighty was in the pictograph of the ancient Hebrew script, which was derived from Egyptian. It looked like a W with the bottoms kind of squared off to almost like U's next to each other. Well, what does that look like? Um, you could say a lot of things, but to them, it reminded them of the udder of an animal, like a goat. All right, all right. Two years hanging I'm, down. I'm sitting here writing. Uh, yeah, and I, st- I wrote those. I'm like, oh no, what's he gonna yeah, say? Yeah, what's he gonna say? Right. So yeah, hey everyone, get used to it. My my wife and I, we talk about this stuff every day. You know, a dinner table and all this stuff. Kids hear about breasts every day. But so, but but, how does this relate to God? Well, it comes back to their understanding. Here's here's what the people of that day understood, and people of our day should understand, is that when a baby animal or a baby human is born, the, the milk that comes from the breast is the complete nourishment it needs. You know, for the first days of life for this young goat, for instance, or lamb, its mother's udder provides everything that it needs, complete nourishment. Even for a a human child, a a human child can live on breast milk for the first 12 months of its life and and need nothing else and be perfectly nourished. And, and, And the beautiful thing about this that I know about breast milk is that the composition of it continually changes. Even if the child is nursed for two or three years, the, the compositions of proteins and carbohydrates mm-hmm. and stuff continually adjust to, to meet their needs. Another beautiful thing, and this is used to be theory and now it's been substantiated, that if a child is ill, when its mouth touches the mother's breast, the contact there, her breast can actually absorb if there's a virus or bacteria in the baby's body and, and the mother's has antibodies that through her biological composition that in the milk, the milk can provide nutrients to help fight off infection in the baby that would, would not get if it was not drinking the mother's breast milk. Yeah, that That's just so beautiful in and of itself. But see, the people of the Hebrew culture understood this intimately to where they realized that God did the same for us in providing the complete nutrition, spiritually, physically, everything that his people needed. Faith, yeah. That's... Yes. Yeah, so so get this. So that word almighty was represented literally by two breasts, okay? And now translate that. Okay, calling God the great breast, you know, it makes no <laughs> sense, right? Yeah, that's what it is. But, that's what, but, but to them, yeah. that's what they saw. Right. They, they didn't see, again, what the objects were. Well, they saw the purpose of them. Wasn't, it was different. I wonder if that even 
translates over when when you talk about a land flowing of milk and honey that's I mean, it that's exactly why it is and the author points it out that's why it okay. said hey a, a land of milk and honey because the milk was the perfect nutrition for for a young child or, or a young nation right no that's exactly what mm. it meant that's exactly what it was i just i never took it farther than you know I never took that all the way up into the realm of the almighty God. So that's pretty, that's pretty neat. Yeah. So, so bringing this back around home, you know, one other tidbit about the book of Mormon, Joseph Smith has been, you know, his name is known for good and bad, but he didn't write the book of Mormon. We believe he just translated it, but he got criticized often for what they said was just, Oh, Joseph's bad grammar. Sometimes he would mix up singulars and plurals where there should have been plurals and singulars. There's three or four instances, actually more than that, in the Book of Mormon where, for instance, heaven and earth are described, but then they'll say literally this. I'm going to read from Second Nephi chapter 1, verse 95, RLDS. For there is a God, he hath created all things, both the heaven and the earth, and all things that in them is. All right, mm-hmm. now it has the word is. Now, if you have one of the 1966 versions, you know, all that's corrected. And some of the other, I think 1908, some of those words were corrected. There's several places where it uses, just search the word in them is, those three words, and you're going to find instances. But search in the restored covenant because you'll see what it originally was. Well, why is this important? Heaven and earth, it's always associated with God creating heaven and earth or heaven and earth in the sea. To the Hebrew mind, all that part of the creation was one creation. It was not separate. It was God created heaven and earth. That was a thing together. It wasn't, oh, heaven's here and it's separate. Because we'd say, for instance, um, in Mosiah 7, King Benjamin says, for six days God made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that in them is. is. We would want to say in all things that are in them, right? We'd want to use the word are because we see them as multiples. No, to the Hebrew, that mm-hmm. meant singular. And that's just why the Book of Mormon is true, even in just this little instance of a single word like is, because it was one to them. You know, I don't I don't want to cut you off. Do you have, if you're honest, I, I can- No, go, 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 go. I was going to say, my son and I have started this, you know, this thing we might have talked about before. Sunday mornings, we go for a drive. We spend, you know, no less than two hours together in a car and we- we drive somewhere different every time and just take in nature and just enjoy some time together. And we talk, oftentimes we play songs. Today, there's this one song that we listen to almost every time. We both like it. And he cues it up on the, we were listening. Today, he goes, Dad. And he stops and he, he pauses the song. He goes, I just got that. And he he tells me about this line in the song. And I had never even thought of it that way. And his understanding, I was like, whoa. I said, isn't that deep? He was, it is deep. That's really deep. Like, and he was talking about how time, without time, this this guy would never have appreciated the relationship he had with this woman. He said, We would I never would have been encouraged to hold your hand. I never would have been encouraged to but he says, But because I realized that there there was gonna come a day when you would be alone or I would be alone, it draw it pushed us together, right? And so there's this underlying and the way it was in the song anyway was so disguised that mm. you didn't get that at first. Now as an artist, somewhat of an artist, a songwriter, things that I've dabbled in in times, those were what makes the best songs. It's a song you can listen to 10 times, and on the 11th time, you pull something out, and there's an obvious meaning, and then there's a deeper meaning, and then Mm. there's a deeper meaning. And so that gives that song longevity, and it also makes it um, a greater song because it hits you on so many levels. Well, 
that's what that's what my son saw today, and he was so excited. And I'm just thinking about that because I wrote I wrote a question down at the beginning of today's episode. I said, "Well, why is this important today? Why can't I just read the Bible and understand it?" You know, people say I'm not smart enough to go into all this Hebrew and everything, and and why can't I just well. God's placed people, Corey, like yourself and others that have this desire. It's not because, um, it's because just what happened today on our drive, Mm -hmm. because you hear this and all of a sudden, whoa, there's another layer. There's Mm -hmm. another layer of understanding. Now I've never read the Bible and thought about (laughs) breast and milk and nourishment and God almighty. When I start thinking about that and I think about what I I know more about breastfeeding things than I ever thought I would when I got into nursing because of the nature of what I do in the home now. But you think about the nourishment, you know, like you said, the milk and everything that starts to, you know, he tells us to become his little children, to be totally relying on him. You get this picture and it just, it's another layer of meaning. And you think that is so cool. I never thought about that. I had a a lady a couple of weeks ago, this baby had a rash, you know, and I came back the next week and the rash was gone. I said, oh, did you go to the doctor? Did you get medicine? She goes, no, I just uh, took some breast milk and rubbed it on her and it went away. Exactly. I had never heard that in my life, but that's just another meaning pointing, you know, with, with almighty, what that means, the two use. That's just, yeah, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> it's a picture. It's my, crazy. Yeah. You know, and, and just to, to that point, my, my wife says, you know, the, we, we we see like breast milk and all this stuff is just like oh well it's just milk no she said it's actually it's living tissue it, it really really is it's it's a, it's a living entity and it's it's the life that's flowing into this this child's mouth and it's more than that it's comfort it's being held close but um and there's nothing else they can um there's nothing else they can take at the time there's you no. know solid food can't can't doesn't work no. it has to be you know. It has to be that, but, you know, we've formulated stuff to be like it now, but yeah. never, never um, at the, in the beginning, that was it. If that child could not take in that milk, it died. It wasn't like you could give it Cheerios and, you know, corn puffs for breakfast. It exactly. was, that was it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there, uh, some years ago, I kind of researched this, that, you know, in, in just all oh, the formula milk, there might be 10 or 15 ingredients maybe now. Uh, human milk has, they're, they're not done discovering. They've, they've identified at least 400 separate uh, components to, to human milk. Mm-hmm. Um, because, and again, we have to relate this back to God. At least that's what we're doing on the podcast is that there's so much that comes from God in every nuance and every aspect that he gives us. And and we have to understand it's, it's again, it's because God is complete. He is whole. He's going to, he's going to give us what we need here and there a little bit. Well, um, one other aspect, uh, and this is, I'm saying this for spiritual reasons. Um, one thing I, I've, learn from my wife is that, you know, when a woman is pregnant, we, we call, uh, these phases of a pregnancy, we divide them up into three and we call them mm-hmm. trimesters, you know, first trimester you experience maybe the morning sickness, second trimester, maybe you're just feeling good and Hey, this is great. Third trimester is like, Hey, I want to get this baby out. Right. These, these three trimesters. And that's the phase of pregnancy. But my wife points out, she said, you know what? Breastfeeding is simply the fourth trimester because the baby's on the outside now, but it still is coupled to its mother. You know, thinking in a traditional breastfeeding aspect where the, when the breast is the only nourishment to the child, that the, the brain is continuing to grow and develop, you know, every, every aspect of this child. And it's continually still supported only by the mother, right? Mm-hmm. And, and this is this aspect of God that he wants us to understand in our life. We are like in this fourth trimester spiritually of our life on this earth. You know, manna was represented as God's word. And that's the only thing that people had to live on for 40 years in the wilderness. 
the manna and they loathed it. You know, what is this white stuff? You know, mm. they didn't ever get it. But it's the representation of God's word, just like the mother's milk to us. It's varied. It's, there's, there's multifacets to it, but it's all designed to be the nourishment we need. And just like a mother's breast milk composition changes over time as the baby grows, so does the composition of God's word, the layers and the depth that you're talking about, Mike, the meaning that all of a sudden comes after you've heard this, read this 10 times, then all of a sudden it's there. That's God doing the same thing with this milk of his life to us. Right. You know, I, I made a note here while you were talking, and I just had this thought, you know, as we've talked about before, the church has had you know, terrible divisions in times over the nature of God. And is he one or is he, you know, Jesus you know, separate or is he the son or are they the same eternal God? But when you said this, I wrote it down and I thought one in purpose is more important maybe than us trying to mentally understand how God can exist in three separate entities and yet still be one. If we could just focus on one in purpose and what is that purpose? Amen. And as we take the gospel back to the house of Israel and they need to know that our God is one, that was their most basic understanding of him. We, we, we bring it to him as one in purpose. What is that purpose? It's bringing all mankind back to him, restoring and, all man to him, and being that what that judge that's looking for a way to pardon his, his children amen. through Jesus. How beautiful is that? Uh, that's what I was going to say, Mike. That is so beautiful. <laughs> that is so, so beautiful. I love this. I love this. So set the debate so, aside on three or one. and it, Let's talk about one in purpose. Exactly. What is God's purpose? Exactly. I love this. Uh, yeah. you know, thanks for bringing this clarity, Mike. That is that is so beautiful. I hope everyone's listening to that. If you didn't get anything Well, we'll title this. this episode Breast Milk, so they'll have to listen to the end. <laughs> that'll, that'll draw the curiosity, <laughs> right? The, the, the mighty breast. Yeah. Just call it the mighty breast. That's who our God is, the Almighty. Yeah. So what you just said, though, I mean, and tying in a beautiful description from the Doctrine and Covenants is, what does he say? And it's in both RLDS, LDS versions. God's work and glory is to bring to pass our immortality and eternal life. You know, in, in other words, it's coming back to what you just said. His unity, his purpose is one. And this is the idea that we are, that the Hebrews didn't lose this. We have, and this is why there's debates and separations. Now, I want to zero everyone in without reading them right now. The scriptures, if you go to ether, if your head's still spinning, how can it be three? I thought it was three and it's one. Go to the brother of Jared's experience when God touches the stones with his finger. And what this experience shows, if you're still trying to conceptualize this as one in person, the brother of Jared's experience explains something, and I'm not going to go into it other than just mention it. He's praying, and he's praying to God the Almighty, and he sees a finger, and he's amazed, and he said, I didn't know you had flesh and blood. And he said, did you see more? No, show yourself. And he sees this human-looking form, and he says, this is the body of my spirit. I am Jesus Christ. So all of a sudden, he's talking to God the Almighty, and then he sees Jesus Christ, and he says, this is the body of my spirit. So he's like saying, my body, my spirit, who I am— this is all one thing right here. And when I come to you, I come to you as a man because you can't come to me in my world, right? But mm. my purpose is for you to come back to me in my world. So for now, I have to come to you in your world and be the sacrifice for your sin. Otherwise, you can't come back to me. That is the unity of purpose. Unity of purpose. And it carries right over into eternal life where we, we say, you know, you're eternal. Well, you can't... Um 
you know, you can't come into God the Father's world yet, and so Christ is still there in body to to minister to you, but not to be eternally separated. That's not the goal at all. That's- no, no. So, so this is, and this is where I want to kind of conclude this thought right here. I want to bring this all home back to some scriptures in First John, and and it reads this way: If you're in the King James or the Inspired Version, the the first epistle of John, chapter five. He that came by water and blood. Even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. Now, here's where we get into uh, some confusion. And, and a friend and I have been emailing back and forth and reading this book on the Hebrew has helped me understand this to try to provide answers. Not that they're mine. I think this understanding the fact that the Hebrew saw this as three in purpose, in unity, versus three is in separate what does this verse say? This is 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. For there are three that bear record in heaven. Now, the very first thing our Western mind did is it just pictured three separate. Three separate. A, a God, a Father, a, a Spirit thing, and there are all these three on this council. No, the three that bear record, there are three purposes that work together in God. And he says, the Father, that's God the Almighty, The Word, who was the Word? That was Jesus made flesh. Okay, this is Ether's experience. God, Jesus made flesh. And the Holy Ghost. Well, the Holy Ghost, the Word, the Father, all have a unity of purpose, right? In other words, that's how God manifests himself to us. As God the Almighty, he manifests himself as God the Son, and he he sends his Spirit, right? But all those three for the same purpose, to bring us back to him. Salvation, amen. Exactly. And it says these three are one. So when we're trying to struggle, how can they be one? And and people do this thing, well, one plus one plus one is three, but one times one times one is one. one. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. No. That's not an explanation. Ice, ice, gas, water. I just almost I, laugh. at It's like, this is unprecedented. Uh, <laughs> one of our elders said it. it's unprecedented. It really is. It's an unprecedented, and you can't, Make an analogy. I mean, you can try, but no, no. And so, what's interesting is what seven verse seven says compared to verse eight. The three in heaven. Now, remember, it's separating heaven, but heaven and earth are one too to the Hebrew. But it says in heaven, God is the Father, God is the Son, God is the Holy Ghost. All have the same purpose, right? But then it says something really weird. First John five verse eight, and there are three that bear witness in the earth. And it says three things that seem totally unrelated. The spirit, the water, and the blood. Mm-hmm. And these are one. Now, why would it use those three things? And I'm sure in the Hebrew they had interesting pictographs, which may these words may have even been derived from, lending to its confusion for us right now. That would be something to study because... I've, that's been, this has been a very hard thing for me to understand. Well, here's where I think it all comes back together in what we've been talking about this morning is that what is God's purpose? It's to bring to pass our immortality and eternal life, to bring us back fully to him. There is no middle ground. Either we're fully with him or we're, or we're not. And that's the wonderful light from the Book of Mormon, but it's in the Bible too. We've confused it with our misunderstandings of all these words. But these three that bear witness in the earth what does the spirit and the water and the blood have to do with each other? Everything, everything. And here it is. What do we do when we make a covenant, right? We, we get baptized. That's the sign of our rebirth, right? What did Jesus do by his blood? He made our rebirth possible, right? That's the atonement. So the water and the blood, that's like what came out of Jesus' side, the same place the right. church was born from, right? The two, the two were one. 
the water of our covenant and the blood of his covenant, right? So his, our response is to make a covenant with him. His response was he died for us, right? The water and the blood. And the spirit is his element that is with us now because we can't be with him. That justifies us or makes us righteous. This idea that if we come to him in a covenant and make an agreement to be willing to serve him, to put our will away. He says, I will bless you with my spirit. And that's the gift of the Holy Ghost, which will help turn your heart to help you want to desire charity. And through this blood of my my covenant with you, the offering of myself, all these three things, your covenant, my spirit, my sacrifice will work in one for you. Hmm. That's how they agree in one. That's so beautiful in the context of the episodes we did a couple of times ago when we were talking about um, just Jesus, the nature of Jesus being born again, the whole, all of that. This is, this is beautiful because this is so clear. And you know what? A couple of weeks ago, I don't even know that, you know, for me, anyhow, my understanding was limited back right. to thinking all these three things are three separate things. How could they possibly be one? But then to realize it's always been about the purpose. What do they serve? And that is one. I like the Holy Spirit, the purpose, you know, helping to change our hearts and turn it towards God. Even, you know, it says sometimes it gives utterance, gives our prayers, you know, words when mm. we don't have them, groans for us. Exactly, exactly. Doing the work. That's yeah. that. We need that helper. And it says it's a helper, a comforter. We need that. Exactly. We can't do it on our own. That's, yeah, that takes away any of, you know. Well, again, and this is kind of my conclusion of this anyhow, is that when we see God as unity and purpose and stop arguing about, well, he's three separate people, and I had a testimony about this, and that. see the bigger picture. Yeah. See the bigger idea of what our mighty God is doing and has done One in purpose. Us. One in purpose. This is probably going to very fast to become one of my favorite episodes, Corey. Mm-hmm. I'm going to listen to this over and over. This is... This has been a blessing, man. What a great Sunday school class. So I I have enjoyed this thoroughly. I've made notes. I hope our listeners can come back to this uh, time and again. There's a lot there. We'll have the links to the book that uh, you and I are both reading, um, to the bat stone. Um, anything else you want to end with? No, we just we serve a mighty God who's greater than anything we can imagine. And that's Let's just realize he is here because he wants to walk us home to him. Ah, Very beautiful. To our listeners, uh, thank you for tuning in. To our friends in California, glad you were able to get together in fellowship. Um, Keep coming back and share this with a friend, if you will. Just pass on the link to our podcast. We want to be a blessing and draw our hearts to our almighty God and creator throughout the week. God bless.